What's up, YouTube? I'm Robert, and this is the Biker Channel B1. Today, you are here on the Biker Bar. I think this is episode, not I think, I know. I know this is episode 15, and uh, today we're going to have TRP Cycling, which is uh, better known for their brakes rather than just cycling in general. Um, before we get started, though, I wanted to thank everybody that's tuning in. Once again, here we are. It's It's Sunday. Some of you guys are missing some football football games. Most of you mountain bikers are probably not watching that stuff. Um, nonetheless, if, if you guys want to support the channel, uh, it would be great if you could swing by Patreon maybe and, and, and have a little piece of that because eventually um, it's either going to be commercials for Patreon, me, or it's going to be maybe someday I'll have have a sponsor and then you'll have to listen to some boring ass shit. If it's a podcast, you'll be hitting that skip 30 second button, trying to get back to the, the spot where people start talking again. So if we want to keep keep the sponsors off the biker bar, swing by Patreon and help support the channel. That'd be awesome. So today we have Cody from TRP Cycling and I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself um, and just a little bit about the company maybe. <clears throat> Yeah, I'm Cody uh, Phillips from TRP Cycling. Uh, I've been with the company about two and a half years now. Uh, I've come from racing background personally and got hired to do marketing initially. And now I do um, some of our marketing work and then some of our OEM sales um, in North America. So a little bit of everything. Uh, we're, a, I guess, smaller in manpower, but... Uh, gaining a larger footprint in the industry. A um, little bit of the background of the company. It's been around, I think, close to 15 years now. Uh, our parent company is Tektro, uh, which many may know is like entry-level cycling products. Um, they're getting going to give you most bang for your buck. Tektro wanted to make high-end products with, uh, with some of the best materials and uh, not have to worry about the cost of them. And that's kind of where TRP came from. Right on, dude. So we we bumped into each other over at uh, Interbike this year. You were at the outdoor demo. Were you guys on the inside too? Yeah, we did both. We were in the we were in the back corner for indoor. How how did how did you like that? Was that your first one? Uh, that was my third Interbike actually. Um, but the uh, the indoor was a little quieter this year, so it wasn't as hectic, which was nice. Like I enjoyed it personally. I don't know if it was as good for business this year. You know, I asked you that, and then I just remembered. I did. I did remember seeing you guys on the inside there. That was my my first time being to Interbike, and it was a, uh, you know, the when I went to Sedona, I really enjoyed that a lot. Like it was really fun talking to all the different different companies and stuff. And when I was at the yeah the outdoor oops the outdoor portion of Interbike, I, I really enjoyed that as well. But the in inside. Um, portion to me it was just a little different than what i was expecting you know? and i think i was i was expecting a bunch of like all the big companies being there and like a bunch of new products to be unveiled and stuff like that and i think that stuff happens at at other venues now it doesn't seem like that's the same way that that it that it was in, in what i was expecting and i think the same thing happened with my subscribers as well because when i put the video out they're like well where's all the stuff from outer bike or inner bike yeah yeah, so, the, the, yeah. The indoor is a little more uh, of a display show, and uh, I think it's changed over the years with the outdoor things becoming more relevant mm -hmm. to 
you know, you see everything on the internet, so there's no reason to go see it in person on a stand. You want right. to go ride it, and that's why you're there. You want to see how it works. Right, right, exactly. So you said you had a, a racing background? Yeah, I, uh, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, I got into bikes as a kid, um, but I always wanted to race and, and be competitive. And so I ended up racing, started when I was about 12 or 13, and then um, they came out with the SoCal League in the high school mountain bike league in Southern California. And I ended up getting into that, racing that a bunch and went to college and raced bikes in college at Lee's McRae College, um, oh, which wow. is the town I, town I live in now. Um, and then realized there's not a whole lot of money in racing bike professionally. <laughs> so I got a job and, uh, so sometimes I get to ride my bike for work and, yeah. um, and it's about as close as you can get without having to ride your bike for eight hours a day. Right. How'd you get hooked up with TRP? Uh, I had a friend working at a company nearby in, in Ogden, Utah, which is kind of a, a hotbed. There's a bunch of companies all over. And he had heard that um, they had someone recently leave, and I was looking for a job out of college, and he kind of connected the two. So, so they're, they're out of Utah. Is, I, I'm sorry, I missed where you said you were from. Are you in SoCal, or are you in Utah as well? So I'm originally from SoCal. I work remotely from North Carolina. Oh, cool. um, and then the company is in Ogden, Utah, the gotcha. headquarters. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now I'm tracking. Um, yeah. what, what, what's your, what's your place that you like to ride the most over there? Uh, I mean, it's Pisgah national forest. Yeah. Uh, it's not very specific. That place because, is, uh, isn't it? yeah, Pisgah is the third largest national forest in the country. Wow. Um, it covers five states. So a lot of people have heard of Pisgah in Brevard, Asheville area, which actually drove down there and rode that today. Oh, sweet. Um, but the area I ride is it's called Wilson's Creek, and it's much lesser known. And uh, you know, you're not going to see tire tracks. Nothing's burned in out there. It's very raw, yeah. natural, like backcountry riding. Right. On. Like I, I carry a first aid kit with me out there. <laughs> Yeah, I actually carry a first aid kit everywhere. I'm one of those. Yeah. I'm one of those guys that's like the the pack rat, you know, or the the pack. Yeah. Rat. Like, I recently went through my Camelback and was like, this is this is, I I am gonna get rid of at least a quarter of a pound of shit out of this thing. In my mind, I thought I was gonna get rid of like five pounds of stuff, but when I went back through, yeah. it, I was like, oh no, I can't get rid of that. What what if I what if I need to do a tourniquet? What if I need to <laughs> chop down? What if I need to chop down a tree? What if I need to uh, have an extra link for a nine speed, a ten speed, eleven speed, or a twelve speed? <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. It really, really, yeah. really is. That really helps a lot though. Like, knowing that Pisgah is, you said five states. Yeah, it's. I think it's. Uh... Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, Kentucky, probably Tennessee. Uh huh. Wow. I think it's the fifth one. Yeah. That, ma that makes so much more sense to me now. I mean, in my mind, it was just around that Asheville area, but there's all these different trails that I see people riding, and I'm like, man, that's just like a huge amount of trails all in one area. Now it makes a lot more sense that it's kind of like a forest, and it's like just different sections of that forest. Yeah, I mean, the Asheville Brevard area has a ridiculous amount of trails like yeah. i think there's more than you could ever ride living down there uh -huh. um, but yeah there are a lot of different zones there's some really good pissy riding down in georgia um where i'm at i'm in next to grandfather mountain which is one of the highest peaks on the east coast so uh -huh. we're some of the more like high altitude oh, okay and uh we'll we'll drop in on some trails at around five thousand feet 
above sea level, which is super high for the East Coast. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and we'll shuttle it and, and descend all the way down to about 2,000 feet. Uh-huh. And it'll be a four five hour ride with you know two or three thousand feet of climbing and and six probably six thousand feet of descending. Oh wow! Sounds so like a good time, a, man. Yeah, it's pretty cool too. It's like a endurance riding for for uh, enduro or downhill guys. <laughs> you know, you you get to be on your bike for six hours, but you're only pedaling for half of it. Yeah, yeah. Out here in California, where I'm at, in Northern California, we we have a bunch of like. Basically, it's like pay and then play. You know, it's like okay, you're yeah. gonna pedal for freaking six miles and then you're gonna descend for that. You know, or something like that. Yeah. So, or you, where are you, you know, uh, located out of? I'm in uh, Northern California, so I'm in Sacramento. So basically, all the okay. stuff around like Tahoe and stuff like that is a lot of what I ride in the summertime and then um, in the winter. And when I don't feel like driving, there's just a bunch of stuff around here and um, and also in the Bay Area kind of, but not not a whole a whole lot in the bay area but i mean it's only a couple hours for me to get to like santa cruz or something like that so yeah santa cruz is one of my favorites <laughs> yeah de- definitely definitely a fun fun place to go definitely a lot of pay to play there too i mean if you're doing like yeah. slow and braille in one day you're getting you're getting some climbing in <clears throat> yeah so, so you guys have uh basically a bunch of breaks is what you guys sell at trp right yeah, so we do brakes. Um, we actually make carbon cyclocross fork. Oh, okay, a fork too. Yeah, and we've done some axles in the past. So we our our official name is TRP Cycling Components. Um, right. But we kind of specialize in brakes, coming with the Tektro background and, and their background in brakes. Uh huh. Um, and so we've been expanding on that a lot in the last really the last three years. Right around when I started, they signed Aaron Gwynn and said let's go big in the mountain bike brake industry. You know, we see the mountain bike sector growing and, and having a need for um, different products and reliable products and quality. Um, and then we see more opportunity with mountain bikes because the brakes and the shifter aren't one unit like they are with road bikes. Right. Um, which hydraulic disc brakes, you have to have a shifter with your brakes. And mm-hmm. So that kind of, um, ruled us out of some of the road bike business for so, the time being. So you guys picked up Aaron Gwen. Um, that that's a pretty big name to be to be getting right out out the gate there. Yeah, yeah. It was basically. Uh, I mean, the, the story's out there, but long story short, he was looking for a brake sponsor, and the two big guys I think didn't want to pay him what he was asking, which, uh, in my opinion, was a pretty fair price. Mm-hmm. And then, so he kind of looked to us and some of the smaller companies and he wrote our brakes and said, Hey, I really like your brakes. I like what the company wants to do. And you guys want to make a better product and work with me. And that's kind of what I want to do. So it was, it was partially that we had a good product and it was partially that we wanted to improve and push our product the way he pushes his racing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he really viewed it as more of a partnership than a sponsorship in a way. Right on. So I'm going to pull up your website here and um, I'll try to explain it as well. Cause this is also a podcast that's on Apple and Google play and SoundCloud after, after the fact. So I noticed that you guys got a, a handful of different um, models here. And for, for those of us that don't know your lineup, let's kind of go through it in terms of like maybe how Shimano's are. A lot of people know their, their like lineup. So you're, is this is quad, quad diem is what you how you pronounce your your top line here? 
Yeah, we call it the Quadium. Um, and those are kind of just, uh, so what you're looking at there is some of the highlighted products mm -hmm. as far as like, that's uh, you know, a break we think is going to be more desirable to people. So we kind of put that on the front page. Got it. Um, essentially so, we do, we do breaks in every sector. Uh -huh. uh, what you're looking at there is our mountain bike line. So we have kind of our downhill gravity, uh, which enduro these days blends the line between trail riding and full on downhill road cup riding. Right. So we tried not to pigeonhole our products and say, this is for enduro riders and the downhill guys won't use it. Or, or if you say this right, for downhill right. guys. So we have our gravity brakes, um, which is the two versions of the Quadium. It's a four piston brake with a super overbuilt caliper. It's not so going to be the lightest. So that would be yeah. close to like a, a SRAM code or a Shimano Saint, something like that. Yes. So it's a very equivalent to both of those. Um, and what kind of sets ours apart is the modulation. It's a, uh, so if you think of it in terms of like a spring rate or on a graph, it's a very linear power curve in the way mm -hmm. it rides. So it allows you to have a little more control when you're braking um, on a trail bike. So it has the power and the heat management to do downhill World Cup racing, obviously with Aaron Gwynn, um, but it gives you the control so that when you're on a trail bike, you're not locking up. If you have, you have smaller tires and smaller contact patch and you're on wet roots um, or wet leaves, you know, things you don't find on the downhill track. Mm-hmm. So it, it, that kind of blends the lines there. Uh-huh. So what what would be like considered like the XT kind of line line or like the, the guide ultimate? So with the XT, that's it's kind of a um it's slated as like your trail bike enduro line. Um, right. and then it's also slated as a certain price point. It's like the the best money can buy without spending more than you need to you know mm -hmm. there's no carbon bits there's no titanium um, but it's still gonna be pretty light and pretty reliable so we have mm -hmm. the quadium um which is the non-g-spec version g-spec being like our xtr level okay so, so the quadiums so the yeah, g-spec so, G when, when, when you're g-spec and it's like 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 you're a pimp right <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah something like that got it um so the quadium is is our xt price point and uh -huh. so you have two choices. You can go with the Quadium, which is like you want an XT brake, but you want you know some downhill power and downhill reliability. Maybe you're trail riding a super gnarly. Mm -hmm. And then we have a new brake coming out that's I don't believe is available yet, but it should be in the next month or two. And that's the G Spec Trail SL. Mm -hmm. And the SL is aluminum lever blade, uses the same calipers our downhill brake, but a lighter lever. So you get a little weight savings. Um, you get that same kind of XT zone price. So it's a fairly affordable, fairly reasonable price, uh, but high performance. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also have the slate, which is a little lighter than that. It's a little more of like a cross country trail break. Your 120 trail bikes where you're, you're not getting too gnarly, but you might do a, go do a big descent. Um, and that's also an XT price, but it, it just hits a different sector of how you plan to ride your bike, essentially. Got it. So one of the things that somebody had mentioned to me when I when I said I was talking to you guys this weekend, they're like, oh, TRP, they're they're super expensive. It, do, you, do you feel like you guys are expensive or do you feel like that's that's kind of like just the public not really knowing your products that well? Or how, how do you how do you like how does that make you feel? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's a hard subject to cover in the bike industry because 
basically every company, all the stuff we make is absurdly expensive to the average person. Right. And you know, you're paying $5,000 for a bicycle. That's absurd. Um, but in the scheme of, of high end mountain bike brakes, I think we are actually typically coming just below a SRAM or Shimano. Okay. Um, sometimes it's probably a lack of communication or, or consumer education mm-hmm. on our products where, you know, we'll say, Hey, this product is competing with on price with these products over here. Mm-hmm. And then it's competing on, you know, the, the production quality or the performance with these products over here. And so sometimes people will compare, Oh, well, this is competing with uh, an SLX brake, So it's more expensive. Right. Um, but, but it's actually, actually a, a higher made brake. So a good example is our, our G-Spec Quadium. That brake is forged, CNC'd, hand polished, and then anodized for the finish. It's a $400 brake set, which after you buy rotors, you're looking at maybe $475 to $500, which is the same price as a Saint. A Saint has a few anodized bits, and then the rest of it is a painted finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at something like a Hope, a Hope will have the same finish as ours where there's their CNC'd out and then anodized and assembled. Um, you're looking at, I believe, at least a $550 brake set to six, $700. Right. So if you look at it on its merits of, okay, how is it produced? What, you know, what uh, materials do we use? And then how will it perform? We tend to come in, you know, 10, 15% on price below people, but become, because it comes in below, they say, oh, it's it's not competing with that. It must be competing with this Shimano that's lower priced than the TRP, therefore TRP is overpriced. Right. So basically people just don't understand your your product line that well because yeah. ultimately you guys are a newer company or are, are you guys coming spec'd on anybody's stuff like build it out like straight from the factory? Yeah, quite a few now, and, and that's actually a big part of my job is is helping to hopefully grow that in the future. Um, but for 2019 bikes, which are either coming out, you know, being announced right now, or they have been over the summer, um, mm-hmm. we'll be on uh, Ghost and High Bike, uh, which are bigger in Europe. Mm-hmm. And then, a few, you know, Specialized has some of our brakes. Um, you'll see them on the new Jameis trail bike. Mm-hmm. The new Fuji trail bike. Uh, Marin's got some cool bikes with their brakes on them. Right on. Uh, I don't want to miss anyone because these guys are all my customers, but I think right. those are kind of the, right. the the ones who are at the top of my mind for 2019. And then obviously right now we're working on 2020 and um, I, trying to I, confirm some of that. Yeah, yeah. I think some of the 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 price points and stuff that you were talking about earlier, I really want to address it from, from my, my um, perspective is I've found out in life, you always, always, always get what you pay for. So, I mean, very, very seldomly is there some product that's priced way cheaper than everybody else's and isn't like, and is like a far superior product. You know what I mean? So I feel like when people really get stuck on the number, of like what something costs, I to me, I'm like, you really shouldn't be focusing on how much something costs. I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, you got to be able to afford it. But on the other end of it, it's like, how does this perform? Like the reason yeah. that 
that I bought Saints was because I'm a big fucking dude, man. And yeah. if I want brakes that work for a big fucking dude, then I have to pay for the big fucking dude brakes. You know yeah. what I mean? I can't go out and get the SLX and be like, what the fuck, man? SRAM or Shimano sucks or whatever it is, you know? <laughs> so I, I, I totally think that um, at the end of the day, you know, let the product speak for itself. And then you can, then you can like go ahead and like, bitch about how much it costs or like haggle the price or whatever it is you're going to try to do, you know, <clears throat> I'll tell you what, when I saw your stuff in, um, at, at outer bike, I, I was actually really impressed just by looking at it. I mean, the, the, you could tell that the, 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 like, you can tell the, the work that was put into designing them, you know, like even down to your, yeah. ro your rotors, which, which maybe we can talk about now as well. Like your rotors look just sick. They have like kind of like these little notches taken out of them. And then inlaid in that is, is that an anodized that's inside of there or something like that? I think it's just a black paint, but because it never actually contacts the pad that, you know, the paint doesn't wear off. Right, so it kind of gives us this, just like a really cool like design look to them. So, how, have you guys been doing um, rotors for a while, or is that a newer thing? Or yeah, so um, you know, with Tectro being our parent company, they're actually a, a massive corporation, one of the largest brake manufacturers for bikes in the industry, so uh, in they, the world. So, are they a company that's like building these brakes for other people, or so Tectro makes uh, brakes for themselves. We we, I'll say we, uh, own our own factory. So all the factories are done in-house, so nothing's outsourced. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're not building brakes for Shran or Shimano. Uh -huh. um, we do do various contracted projects as, you know, any factory in, in Taiwan will, where someone says, hey, I've got this crazy project and I want to pay you money to produce it. That's what a factory does. Right. Uh, so we, we do some projects like that, but all of those are kind of confidential and we, we don't really talk about that too much. Mm -hmm. um, but Tektro does um, all the brakes in-house. A few things are outsourced like nuts and bolts because there's one guy who makes 10 million bolts a year and he can make them for way cheaper than we can make our own bolts. So right. things like that will buy, but all the calipers are all, they come in as rock streeted aluminum and then they get stamped and pressed and CNC'd, cleaned out, assembled, um, painted, polished, and then packaged all in, all in one warehouse, probably you know, you can walk from the start of the finish, start of the production line to the end in about 10 minutes. So that all being in one location then probably does a lot for your quality control then. Yeah. And that's been one of Tektra's biggest things is, is you know, being the underdog or, or the smaller company when you're competing with a name like Shimano or SRAM, there's no room for failure. You know, we can't have a, you know, say, oh, we, we messed up on this model of brakes, so we need to recall 50,000 of them. So right. for us, it's it's not acceptable to have failures. And obviously, when you're making you know six million breaks a year, a few are going to get through. But for us, it's been reducing that number. And uh, the way Tektra does that is every single hydraulic brake, Tektra or TRP, um, no matter the price, that leaves our factory gets tested, 100% uh, quality control check. So it gets put on a dyno where it's going to cycle the brake and just squeeze the lever. Does that about 250 times. And then it presses and holds the lever. So the whole system's under pressure for about two minutes. They hang them up for 36 hours, let them sit, you know, look for any oil leaking, and then put it back on the dyno for another 250 cycles, um, held for another two minutes, inspected and packaged. And that's 
from everything from the brake that comes on your eight hundred dollar mountain bike to the brake that comes on your you know YT Aaron Gwynn special edition bike. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're looking at out of we probably make two to four million hydraulic brakes a year, and everything that leaves is, is tested to that level. Wow, that's crazy. Which on on some eight hundred dollar mountain bikes. The 500 cycles it sees in the factory is more than it sees in the life life of the brake. <laughs> Probably, I know. Uh, I've bought my fair share of used bikes, and a lot of them were high end bikes that had like three rides on them. So, <laughs> yeah, there, there's definitely some 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 bicycles being purchased that aren't being used for for what they're they're for. I, I just had a conversation with a guy the other day that was like. You know, just one of those like like an Uber driver or something like that. And he was like, Oh yeah, I'm gonna get a bike, I'm gonna start riding bikes. And he's like, Yeah, I'm probably getting a mountain bike. And I'm like, So are you are are you gonna be like riding on trails or or what? No, I'm just gonna ride around town and stuff. And I'm like, so like check this out, bud. If you want a mountain bike, get a mountain bike if you're gonna be on the dirt. <laughs> if you're yeah. gonna ride around town, there's so many bikes <clears throat> that are like way more efficient for that. You're fucking wasting your time and your money getting a mountain bike. And, you know? Yeah, and more affordable and and uh, or if you want to spend the same amount of money, you get a nicer bike if you're not paying for suspension and, and yeah, yeah, tires yeah. that are meant to go over rocks. Right, exactly. I know yeah. the first time that I ever like uh I, I was a strictly mountain biker for a long time and I decided to buy a single speed like you know road bike basically. And um, because I was like, oh, I could commute to work. It's only like 16 miles and that'll like burn some calories and then I can drink more beer. That'd be awesome. And uh, so I bought this bike, man. And the first time I like rode it, I was like blown away by how fast I could go. You know, it's like, holy shit. If you, yeah, if if you're actually using the right tool for the job, it's crazy how much better it is, you know? Yeah. Before that, I was just using a hammer for everything. All of a sudden, I'm like, holy shit, there's screwdrivers out there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, the, the the rotors that you guys have, are they more like do you have just that like one line or do you have like different different levels of those? Is it kind of like here's a two part rotor? Here's a one part rotor? Here's a, the the ice tech equivalent or whatever. Yeah, so we've got about three right now three different you know types of rotors you can get one is a one piece which is pretty standard going to be good for your everyday rider um it's pretty affordable it's one piece of you know steel so they'll just get you know a huge extruded piece of steel and they'll just slice out rotors essentially once Mm -hmm. the slice is taken they'll go through and drill it out put the holes and the the slots and all that stuff Um, but essentially the one piece is going to be cost effective and Performance-wise, it's going to do the job. Um, mm-hmm. The two-piece rotor uses an aluminum center carrier, so the the center piece is aluminum, and the outside is steel, the braking right. surface. Having the aluminum carrier, it dissipates heat better because aluminum dissipates heat better than steel. Right. Um, you have more material there, therefore you have more surface area. Um, but aluminum is lighter than steel, so by making the center of the rotor uh, aluminum, you can actually save weight, uh, decrease heat. Uh, in increased performance, so it's kind of a win-win on all all uh, areas except for your wallet. So they're going to cost a little bit more, right? Um, and then we have two-piece center lock, which is mostly because Shimano invented center lock hubs, and you can't put six bolts on center lock. So both of those are two-piece options. Does it seem like a lot of people use center lock? 
to you, like what you guys see in your sales? Because for me, I'll be honest, like whenever I've considered it, every time I decide not to is like for this reason. I'm like, if I get a six bolt hub, I know that if center lock decide if Shimano decides center lock goes away next year, I'm still going to be able to get products because that's what everybody else does. Like, even if it may be, and this, you know, is completely arguable or whatever, if it's better, yeah, that's great. But I'd rather have something that I can have for longevity than, than something that may be like nominally better, probably on just some kind of scientific test or something. Yeah. I mean, so I can tell you center lock is, you know, easier to, to install and remove. Um, and I travel a lot with my bike for, you know, testing and, and OEM meetings and such. Mm -hmm. And I have to take my rotors off when I fly with them because right. if I don't, they get bent and warped and rubbed. Mm -hmm. So I really wish I had center lock. The problem is not everyone makes center lock hubs. Um, if you're buying a used wheel set, you have to buy what someone already had. Most people don't use center lock for mountain bikes. So they're right. harder to find. So I just end up with six volt. Didn't um, Shimano just come out with something new too? They came out with the micro spline for cassettes. That's what it was, yeah. I th yeah, I think that's what I was I was mixing up with too. They're always uh, always uh, they're always they they got a marketing department. It's like, hey, let's just make some changes, and uh, everybody will buy new shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as much as it it seems being on the inside, you kind of see and you talk to customers, and and there are reasons for it. Uh -huh. It's just not always a reason that that uh, is worth explaining. Mm -hmm. because you'll say, oh, well, it's going to save this much weight and allow things to be stronger. And in Shimano, you know, in the back of their mind, maybe they have some product, some crazy new invention they're working on that's going to come in two years that has to use this, you know, micro spline technology. And uh, to you right now, you're like, well, that's stupid. It already worked fine. Why did you change it? But they have this new technology that they, they can't tell you about yet, but they have right. to have micro spline for it to work. And if they introduce it and nobody uses micro spline, then how are they going to sell it? Right, right. I got it. Same, same with uh, you know SRAM and XD drivers. They didn't, they didn't need it when they were doing a, a 1042 cassette because they could have made it an 1144 and it right. would work fine. But to do the the 1052 range that they do with Eagle, they needed an XD driver. And you don't want to introduce a, a crazy new giant cassette and a new free hub driver all at once. And, and you're going to leave the customers super confused and not right, to right. buy it. Or just flat out pissed off because they got to go buy new hubs or something like that, and and this new cassette that's four hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly, and and it kind of happens that you know with the whole boost thing, everyone was real pissed about boost. And, oh, now my wheels won't work, but now every new bike people buy, they brag about how short their chain stays are, and yeah. how quick their bike handles, and that's all made possible by boost. Yeah, at the time when it happened, nobody thought they needed it, but. To me, as soon as it came out, like I, I drank the Kool-Aid right out the gate. And yeah. I think it's because I'm a bigger guy and you know, they're talking about more more stability and stuff like that. And um for me, I was like, well, that makes sense. I can totally get that. So when I bought my Bronson, that was one of the key things where I was like, I'm getting a bike. Well, like I knew I was buying a new bike. So there was no way I wasn't buying a bike that didn't have boost. Cause I knew yeah. that. It was going to be, you know, maybe everybody wasn't jumping on board right out the gate, but it was like, I want to keep this bike for a while. So I, I know I want that, you know? Yeah. So somebody asked here earlier, 
And I'm going to read this because I don't have a clue what he's talking about, but you probably will. So he says, will you guys be offering a product comparable to the Tetro E725 with the rise of e-bikes on the mountain bike scene? Um, yeah, so you can actually, I think it's live on our site because I'm pretty sure I put it on there, but we do have a new e-bike break coming for TRP. Um, it may not be, you know, identically comparable to the Tektro 725, um, but we have, so, so that model is the Zurich and that's for more European stuff on the road where they have to have cutoff switches. And that's what that wire you see is it goes to the engine. So you're not braking and pedaling at the same time or oh, braking okay. and engaging the motor, which would drain the battery. Right. That and um, it also just doesn't make any sense. Right. <laughs> yeah. You, and you'd be surprised, but it's, it's the law over there. So you actually have to have the cutoff switch. Okay. Um, and then some bikes in the U S like commuter bikes, um, will use that cutoff switch as a brake light. So when you squeeze the lever, it sends a signal and it lights up your brake light, just like a car would. Oh, okay. That's cool. Um, yeah. And then we have the G spec EMTB, which is kind of our e-bike performance brake. So it has some features and technology geared towards, um, obviously a heavier bike, higher speeds and longer distances. And that will kind of be our, our first step into the e-bike realm. Uh, and that breaks pretty cool. So would it be safe to say that with e-bikes coming out and ultimately them trying to cut the weight of those things that we could, we could in the future be seeing better brakes that are lighter just by, because of that industry kind of pushing the, the brakes. Well, e-bikes are wanting to get lighter, but I don't think the brakes are an area they're looking to shave weight yet. Right, I think I mean, what you'll get from e-bike brakes is more powerful brakes and uh -huh. brakes that work better with heat um, and and heavier and and braking with heavier loads. I guess right is the idea because if if I you know I weigh 160 pounds, if my bike weighs 30 pounds, you're looking at a 190 pound ride. If right. I'm riding a 50 pound bike and I weigh 160 pounds, you're looking at a 210 pound ride, which is 10% heavier. Yeah. And so you need a, the ability to, um, you know, have 10% more braking power in theory. And then I'm going to be traveling at an average of 20 miles an hour because that's when the engine maxes out. So why wouldn't I go uphill as fast as possible? <laughs> um, and so you're going to be braking going uphill. You're going to be braking going downhill with the engine. You're probably going to be riding, you know, 50% farther. So you're going to go through the pads more. Um, if you're braking uphill and downhill, your brakes are going to be a lot hotter the whole time. So there's a lot of issues around uh, heat dissipation, durability, and consistency with e-bikes and the, you know, the loads these guys are putting on there. So basically what you just said to me is that I need to get e-brake brakes for my, my Bronson because I'm a fat ass. You know, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> want to say that to you, but... You're all, it could Essentially, work. if if you got that break, I think you'd be very pleased with it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that totally made me forget what the hell I wanted to ask you, but it's all good. <laughs> That's that's uh that's some good shit there. Um, what are you seeing in in the uh like if if you're like looking into the future, what kind of what kind of changes do you do you think there's going to be happening in the brake industry? <clears throat> I think that the big thing that you know the brake industry as a whole is is struggling with right now is consistency in performance. 
you know, you have a lot of, uh, well, I got to get my brake blood or, or. Well, I lost him. So in the meantime, I'm just going to keep talking until he comes back. Sorry. Oh, there he is. My back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, I think the big thing is, is the brakes being more, cons you know, my opinion being more consistent, requiring less service. Uh, I don't know how, how that's going to be done by other companies. Um, but I know that's a big thing for us is, is with bikes going more consumer direct and people wanting to service things on their own, uh, making service easier, more accessible, but also less frequent. So are you guys using mineral oil or uh, dot? So we use mineral oil oh, on all our brakes since Tektra started 30 years ago. Well, that's good because for those of you guys that don't know what we're talking about right there, basically DOT is what SRAM uses, mineral oil. I can't even fucking say that. Mineral oil is what Shimano typically uses. And the downside to DOT is that it will like erode things that it gets on. So like it could screw up your paint or something like that. I think the plus side to DOT, if correct me if I'm wrong, Cody, um, the plus side is that it, it, it can hold a higher temperature of heat and maybe not not uh, dissipate over time as as much as the mineral oil. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, dot fluid is corrosive. Uh, so if you're bleeding your brake and you spill a little on your lever or your frame and you don't clean it off right away, it can eat away at the paint and basically that paint will fall off. Um, you are not supposed to drain a because it's a hazardous material, um, but b because it can slowly eat away at your pipes and you'll have a a leaky pipe um mineral oil is i wouldn't call it safe like i wouldn't go drink a bottle of it but if you spill <laughs> it on your bike or you get it on your hands basically your skin's going to be real soft you know, kind of like you use lotion mm -hmm. and then and then you're going to go on with your day uh, dot fluid is less susceptible to heat change so it will work at, at like you know below zero temperatures and it will um has a higher boiling point so it will, uh, it's a little higher performing in a sense, um, but bikes don't typically get to the heats where you're gonna boil mineral oil. Um, right. And maybe some people do, but I don't ride my bike if it's below like 10 degrees out. Yeah. Personally. <laughs> um, yeah, and if you, so have a, if, you have, if you have a reverb dropper, you're definitely not riding your bike at that temperature because apparently those things don't work when it gets cold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, most heat, I mean, seat droppers in general, suspension doesn't work very well when it's right. when the seals are frozen, obviously. Right. Um, yeah, and then dot fluid tends to uh, mix with the environment a little bit. And so that's how you get air bubbles a little easier and um, a brake that can require more service than a mineral oil brake. Mm -hmm. Mineral oil brakes tend to, once you bleed it, you can kind of run it a little longer than you're supposed to without any issues. Whereas a dot brake, you'll bleed it. And then kind of on time that will say, okay, you need to, you need to believe this because it's going to stop working. Or if you flip it upside down, the, the lever will pull to the bar kind of thing. Uh -huh. um, they both work great. I've, you know, over my years, I've ridden a lot of dot fluid brakes and, uh, you know, obviously now a lot of mineral oil brakes and they all work good. So I'm not, you know, saying one's better than the other. And that's, that's a debate. That's like, 
use the iPhone or the Samsung better. Yeah, it's yeah. Not, not a, a debate I want to be in the middle of. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, it's a religious debate. I, I definitely yeah. understand where you're coming from there. I, I think at the end of the day, what you said is they both work. And, and I think that's that's true. For me, I think the difference is what is easier for me to work on where I don't have to worry about yeah. something up. And, and mineral oil, like, takes the cake there. So... <laughs> Yeah, they, they definitely have pros and cons and there's, you know, in my opinion, a lot, a lot of reasons why we chose mineral oil that I would agree with. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm on board there as well. So the other thing I wanted to ask you earlier, whenever I, I got, got hung up with your, uh, your comment about how, how much I weighed no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> was, uh, do you guys have, um, like some kind of heat sink type of fins on your brake pads or are you using, um, you're, I assume you're making your own pads, right? Yeah, yeah. So we we do all our pads in house. Um, I've actually seen it; it's pretty cool. They lay them out like you're baking cookies, and then put stuff on and put it in the oven and basically bake the pad material. Uh, so we don't have any heat sinks on our pads. We do that with the rotors, or not the rotors, sorry, the caliper. Mm -hmm. um, so if you look at our like the Quadium caliper, it's this it's pretty big, beefy caliper, similar to a Saint. Um, but probably a little larger than a saint. And then we have these machining grooves in the top, which are your cooling fins. Mm -hmm. um, and that just, in, you know, by machining that out, gives um, some more room for the heat to dissipate. And then the larger caliper gives you more material to absorb heat. And then obviously more surface area to dissipate heat through it. Um, and then inside our, inside our calipers, we actually use a hybrid ceramic steel piston. So it's a steel piston with a ceramic puck on the inside. Um, that ceramic puck absorbs the heat, helps prevent any any you know fluid boil or, or the fluid getting heated up. So we have some different ways of kind of doing those tricks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and obviously we're always looking into ways ways to improve the brakes. Uh, but fins on the caliper at the moment are not the most important thing to improve on the brakes. I think. Mm -hmm. I, think I think it's uh, yeah. For for me, like I felt like I, I had the uh, the guide ultimates, and I I felt like the, or, or the reason that I ended up getting rid of them was not because the braking power wasn't there. It was just because they would, in my opinion, they weren't dissipating heat well enough. So my my pads would get like glazed over, and then I'd have like this pack of turkeys or chipmunks or whatever you want to call them <laughs> chasing me around, you know, and and. Uh, that was one of the things that I knew that with like Shimano's, like they had that heat sink there or whatever the, their, their ice tech rotors just looked like they would dissipate heat even better than, than the, um, the center lines by SRAM. So when I switched over, I really, I don't have any problems with them at all until like a long day of, of downhill, like they'll start to, they'll start to howl at the end of the day, but not not before then so um i would be interested to in trying out your brakes i really would be just to kind of see where they stack up you know yeah yeah definitely we'll have to once those e-bike brakes are available we'll have to get you set up with a pair <laughs> i definitely definitely need don't need them with the with the uh the brake light on the back because we don't know anybody knowing how much i'm using my brakes that would that would suck <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so um what what else do you do you guys see any other things in in the in the future as far as like product development for you guys that you're um kind of trying to focus towards or um uh, i mean nothing specific that i can speak on right. um 
but you know we're always in looking to improve our products to make them more reliable if there's a way we can make it more affordable or perform better um you know kind of all three of those or lighter um and then we're always looking at other products you know where there's a need and maybe there's a product that we don't think is being done well or mm -hmm. you know it's being done well it's easy to replicate but people are being overcharged for it right um, or maybe where there's only one person or two two companies do it making the specific product so you know we think there needs to be a third player to you know give a little more open fair market and uh, and keep everyone challenged so that's you know that's always something we're looking into but obviously that's not something we can talk about until yeah, you know, yeah. the day of the announcement of whatever right. it is right so when you started there did they did they take you over to like the the manufacturing facility and let you kind of see that or are they just like showed you like what was there in Utah or what, what kind of like, how did you get the experience with how, how they do things? So it wasn't until I started working on the OEM side, which in, in the industry, we call that product. So that's guys who are designing bikes, guys who are selling parts to go directly on those bikes stock. Mm -hmm. uh, so until I started working in product, I had not been over to Taiwan, uh -huh. um, but there's a big, uh, not a show, but kind of a, get together where everyone says we're going to all be in Taiwan for this one week and then we're going to hash out everything. So the guy who's making the bike can say, uh, well, we wanted these brakes made this way so they'd fit on our bike better. We can mm -hmm. go through all those issues. Um, and that was uh, last October I went over there and that was my first time being in the factory, uh, yeah. first time in Asia. And that's kind of when they gave me the whole, uh, the whole factory tour. And so I was over there for, a day and a half and they gave me the tour and then asked me to go give GCN the tour of the factory and and have their presenter do a, a full you know 20 minute factory tour thing uh -huh. um, so that's kind of where I, I got all these lines pretty pretty well versed was you know when you're working with those guys you gotta you gotta make sure you have your stuff ready and ready to do it because their their uh, time is valuable right so um, so basically you got the tour and then you had to do the tour, like give the tour immediately after yeah so i i got the tour and then you know a day later i just had to write down some notes and then i went through it with the gcn guy and luckily they didn't put me on camera but i was basically standing behind him and they film a clip come over and say okay now this is what we're doing here right and this is what i should say right and we say yeah and then he, and then you go back to doing it and there were a few other guys there helping me make sure we had all the answers right but <laughs> you know, I was I was in charge of not getting lost in the in the factory with them. I bet you felt like you had a fucking shitload of pressure on you at that point. You're like, oh god, don't fuck this up. <laughs> yeah, I had, I had one guy one guy from the uh, the Tektra side who works in the factory with me. So if if he wasn't there, we would have got lost in there and never found our way out. How long were you over there? I was over that trip was two weeks. Uh -huh. So I was, I was over at the factory for a few days and then we had a bunch of meetings for about a week and then some, you know, kind of follow up and marketing meetings just because the factory is also the headquarters. So, uh -huh. uh, did you get to ride bikes while you were there? I did. I got to, uh, one of my coworkers on the Taiwan side when we made his road bike. And so I got to do actually some group rides with a bunch of the industry people who were all over there. And that was pretty cool. A little wild. Yeah. And then, yeah, there was no mountain biking done on that trip. So yeah. it's just, just some road biking in the city. Yeah. 
either way though i mean it's still still pretty cool did you get to do any like sightseeing or anything like that or did you go to uh, maybe like any other factories other than the stuff that you guys are working on or i didn't i didn't actually get to go to any other factories that trip i did a little sightseeing um on the bike rides you know we rode out to some farmlands and stuff which was pretty cool and get deep in the jungle and it's it's a wild place there's you know they don't have fences dogs run in the street and somehow <laughs> the dogs in taiwan are smarter than the dogs in the u.s and they don't get hit by cars <laughs> uh, a lot of people there also don't drive cars they ride scooters right um, which is it's pretty crazy to see you're in a city and you're at a stoplight and there's two cars and then about 50 people on scooters yeah. And they just take off like this whole mob of people on scooters and you're sitting there with your bike sprinting to try and keep up with them and not get run over. <laughs> so are are you um are you guys you guys are selling, I assume, internationally, so you're in Europe as well and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. So we're uh we sell off our website to anywhere in the world. We'll ship, you know, worldwide. Mm -hmm. Um Tektro Taiwan will sell within Asia. Um our headquarters is in Utah, and then we're planning to open a European headquarters pretty soon, uh, within you know within the next couple months. And so that will make European distribution a little easier. Mm -hmm. uh, but mainly, we rely on a network of distributors uh, all over the world. So in Canada, we have Live to Play, which is um, you know similar to QBP here in the states, and in the UK, we have a brand called Upgrade. Um, they're a distributor, so they do TRP. They own DMR, which is like Bren, Brennan Faircloth's signature pedal and grips. Um, they distribute for several other companies. Right on. Uh, so we, we have distributors everywhere, and that's kind of how we get our product um, to the local markets. So what what about the, the brake industry was surprising to you when you got into it? Um. Not too much. It's it's tricky because I think everyone has their judgments about this breaks good, this breaks bad. Having raced for years, you have various sponsors and you end up on, on several different brands over time. Um, and I came into TRP saying, you know, okay, I've never heard of these guys really. I've never ridden their brakes. You know, we'll see how good they are. And I was surprised how you know everyone makes a really good product and it's just uh, kind of subtleties in the way the product works that makes a difference. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like with trail bikes today. You're not going to buy a trail bike that doesn't work well, mm -hmm. but you might buy one that descends better and doesn't climb as well, or one that's more geared towards climbing, but maybe doesn't descend as well. It's all personal preference. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of like your Shimano Saints are going to be have a ton of power right at the beginning and super snappy uh, and maybe a little grabby. And some people don't like that. So they like uh, a TRP or a SRAM where it's a little smoother at the beginning. It's not as grabby because if you're a lighter rider or you're riding you know, smaller knobs, you might have issues with traction. Mm -hmm. Out here on the East Coast in the wet routes and stuff, having a real grabby brake is, is not good. Um, and then there's some people who you know prefer a SRAM to a TRP for, for various reasons or, or vice versa. Um, so I think they're all pretty good products. You know, you get differences in when they need to be serviced and that sort of thing. But Again, it's all a it's all a personal preference thing. So, uh, I, I would assume that you're running TRP brakes on your bike, right? Yeah. <laughs> and what, what kind of bike you riding? So I've got a cross country bike and a trail bike. So I'm riding an Evil Reckoning as my trail bike. Uh huh. Uh, the 
Pisgah around here is basically downhill riding. Like I, I ride with a convertible full face helmet and knee pads all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, it's basically a mini downhill bike. What, what, helmet, I, what helmet are you using? Uh, the Bell Super DH. Oh, nice. I just got that helmet actually. And uh, that thing's really fucking comfortable, man. Yeah, 10 out, of, 10 out of 10 would recommend anyone. I'm not sponsored. I bought it, you know, I paid for yeah. it. And I got all my buddies bought it too. And, you know, the, we all. The like only thing teeth. that I can say about that helmet compared to like the Fox Pro frame that I saw some other guys riding is that the front of the Pro frame is open. So you can actually just like stick your camelback like hose right in there. Where, yeah. where like the, the bell one, you still got to kind of fish it up under your, under your chin or whatever. But if, if that's like the worst thing that I can come up with, I don't really yeah. think that, that big of a fucking yeah. deal. <laughs> yeah, my, my only complaint is that I can't wear glasses with it. For some reason, the way the, the back end sits, it hits the glasses and makes your glasses shake when you're rotting. But oh, okay. it, has, it has goggle storage on the visor, so I just yeah, drive yeah. goggles and then mud doesn't get in my eyes ever. Right on, and, man. Uh, yeah, to me, the whole idea is that you take the chin bar off when you're going uphill and you shouldn't be drinking out of your camelback when you're going downhill. Right. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I just wore the damn thing all day. I think in my head, like, I'll use my, like, kind of, like, half lid for normal riding or whatever. Whenever I feel like I need some extra protection, I'm just going to be using it as a full face. But those, like, convertible kind of full face helmets are are really the ones that have, to me, like, at least what I'm seeing is, like, some of the best like ventilation and, and really, you know, kind of dial away that way. And then having that option, you know, maybe, maybe if I am going to be somewhere where I'm, I'm a pedal for a bunch before I'm doing that, like gnarly downhill, then, then maybe I'll do that. Yeah. Where, where we're at, it'll be, you know, a 10, 15 minute downhill where you, you want a full face and knee pads on and then you get to the bottom and then it's a 20 or 30 minute climb out right. of that valley to the next ridgeline. And you don't want, you want a helmet on because you're always going over rocks and logs and you don't want yeah. to fall and hit your head. Um, but you don't want that chin bar on. So you just reach back, unclip the two in the back one. And then just, you know, you can either clip it onto your, you know, your fanny pack or your camelback, or, you know, I have one with, I'll just throw it inside Yeah, and it takes you 30 seconds. And then you're going up the hill with nothing in front of your face. You can breathe clearly. You can pick your nose, you can drink yeah. your camelback. Uh, whatever you want and then you get to the top you slap it back on it takes you 30 seconds and then you're, you're fully safe to go down and and face plant as much as you want yeah right <laughs> so the reason i asked though about the brakes that you were riding was like what are the things that stand out to you then now that you've been using the trp for a while like if you were talking to one of your buddies about why you, hey dude get this break instead of that break like what are the things that stand out to you so the biggest thing with our, I mean, the most important to me is the reliability and consistency. They are super reliable. I won't say they always work because nothing always works. You know, everything will fail at some point. Right. Um, but they're, they're super reliable and consistent. I, I've never had to bleed my brakes. I come in from racing, I'm real picky and I want my brakes to feel absolutely perfect with no sponge. Yeah. So I will bleed my brakes occasionally. Um, but I don't have to bleed him. I haven't had him fail on the trail, um, issues like that. And then other than that, it's the, the modulation. So what I mean by modulation is the, I guess it's like the power curve. So similar to a spring, spring curve, you have some bikes that are more progressive and some that are more linear. Mm -hmm. Our brakes are, are very linear, so it's intuitive. If you squeeze 10% harder, you get 10% more brake power. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, sometimes people complain, I have to squeeze these brakes really hard for them to brake super hard. Uh, but on the other side, when you want to just, you know, squeeze 7.5% um, of the brake power, you don't accidentally squeeze, you know, a hair too hard and it locks up the wheel. Yeah. And I can, I can relate with that, what you were saying about Shimano earlier, you know, I do like that bite on the front end of them, but sometimes it, it, it definitely is a little grabby whenever you're, you're just trying to like do that real light touch somewhere, you know? Yeah. And, uh, the guys at the lone wolf, it's, it's a review, a website. I don't know if you've seen it, you know, similar to pink bike or vital. Right. Um, they did a really good review on our break where they explain, you know, why you might like this brake or why you might have issues with that type of braking power. And, you know, they just laid it out kind of the way I did, whereas it's a personal preference thing. Some people like boom, instant power and that snap. And some people like to be able to scrub, you know, a precise amount of speed so that they're never stopping. They just want enough. that They don't crash in the corner. Right. Um, and I think yeah. for me coming from racing, that's what I want. I want just, I want ultimate control because I don't want to stop when I'm riding. I just want to slow down enough. Right. And I think, I mean, even as a Shimano rider, I think your brain kind of like learns how to feather that, you know, but yeah, absolutely. But, but I think that you definitely do have some situations where, where it is a little grabby and I I can like, to me, it's like the low speed stuff, you know, maybe you're climbing or something like that, or, or you like bump your fucking brake because you're dicking around with something else and you're like, Whoa, you know? So, um, I, I think for me, like I honestly could ride a your brake. Buddies don't, your buddies don't reach over and slap your front brake when you're climbing. Well, and then there's that too. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, I think for me, I could, I could kind of take a break that, that works either way. Like at the end of the day, for me, I just want a break that really works and then doesn't fade over time. You know, that, that's yeah. the one that that's just a real pain in the ass, you know, especially when you're doing something like a, a Downeyville or something like that, where you got, you know, five, 6,000 feet of elevation that you're dropping over, you know, an hour or two and like a, a, a cheaper break will definitely like, it, it, it'll start to fade away. And I always yeah. tell, I always tell people like, you never know that you have shitty breaks until you get better ones. Yeah. You know, you're <laughs> like, Oh, my breaks are fine. You know? And then, then you get some better ones and you're like, Holy shit, man, my breaks were crappy as fuck. You know? Yeah. Or yeah, you know, no, it's yeah, it's definitely a personal preference thing because I've met guys who come from Shimano and say, "Oh, I love your brakes. This control is amazing." And then I've met guys who come from Shimano ride them and say, "I I'm just a grabby brake guy. I guess I I I like Shimano and I'm going to go back to that and I like that." Yeah, I, I think, think that's the whole goal of the industry is you can get what you want, right? Not that GRP rules the world and you only buy our brakes, but right. it's that if you if you don't want to grab your brake, there's an option. And if you don't want dot fluid, there's an option. I think the other thing too, is like the only way that you're really going to know that is by trying different stuff, you know, and that, that's one of the things that I recognize now that I've been doing the channel for a while and I've been on a bunch of different bikes and, and, you know, when I, when I wasn't doing the channel, I wasn't going out and renting bikes for the fuck of it because I had a bike and I didn't need to spend any more money on renting somebody else's shit. Right. You know? And yeah, like, it was like, you know, Hey, you're, we're going to go ride this place. You could rent a DH bike. I'm like, I don't care. I, I got a bike. I don't need to rent. You know what I mean? <laughs> and and yeah. so like over time though, of trying different stuff or, you know, or just like in, in longevity of a mountain biking career, like riding like 
on your own, you know, you're like, oh, I've tried this because I broke my old ones and I upgraded or whatever. And, and that I, it really takes all that experience to even start understanding what people are talking about, you know, with modulation or something being grabby or not. Like if you would have talked to me about that before I started the channel, I probably didn't have a clue what you were talking about. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, that kind of brings us back to the whole outdoor demo thing. And that's, I think that's the reason why those are growing so much is people are realizing, you know, all the whole industry, all the products are getting so good that it's becoming less of, oh, this one's clearly better than that one. Or right. Clearly, Tran is better than Shimano. And now it's, well, if you like this, this is the one you want. If you like that, that's the one you want. So it's it's more of a, of a preference than a, a clear choice. Yeah, I just don't, I, I think, you know, and I, I agree with you. I think that people should definitely be going to these events. And I think that's where, where you'll probably see more like the inner bike, that outdoor demo thing getting bigger. And I think that that kind of stuff is really important for people to go out and do. And A, it's fun to be around a bunch of new people or like around a bunch of people in the industry. And B, it's really cool to be able to have an event like that or a Sedona. I know they have some back east too, like something down in Florida. And I think there's something else up in your area too. That's like, yeah, there's, you know, eight, fest up in Pennsylvania. Right. You know, you pay like 80 bucks for the day or whatever it is. And you can, you know, demo as many bikes as you can, as long as you're there at freaking the crack of dawn. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but I mean, at the end of the day, like, I think that stuff's important, especially when you're, you're trying to make a decision on buying a bike. I hate when people like not hate, but, when people ask me, they're like, what bike should I buy? It's like, dude, you could ask a million people. None of them are going to have the answer that's right for you. You need to go out and like try it. Yeah. Yeah. I could usually point you to two to three bikes based on what you want. Right. But I couldn't, I couldn't make you choose. Right. And even then, you know, a lot of guys, especially when they're just starting, they're like, well, I don't know what to get there. There is a lot of, there is a lot of bikes out there and it is definitely yeah. intimidating to go out and make a purchase that could be, you know, a couple thousand dollars, even if it's on the low end, I mean, 1500 bucks, yeah. if that's what your budget is, that's a lot of money to you. You know what I mean? And, and, um, to go out and like, just decide it, it, it's, it's just really tough, you know, but ultimately like you really have to go out there and, and put your ass on the saddle and figure out what it is that you want. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, it, it's crazy how, how the industry has changed over the years. I know, I took like a little bit of a, a hiatus in my, my riding. And um, when I got back into it, like I walked into the shop thinking I was going to spend $2,000 and get like a badass bike. And I asked the guy, <laughs> you know, I'm like, Hey, I want to get yeah. a mountain, mountain bike. And he's like, you want an XC bike? You want a trail bike? You want an enduro bike? Do you want a downhill bike? And I'm like, uh, dude, I said mountain bike. You know, like, yeah. So I, shit, shit's definitely, definitely changed. So when you were racing, somebody said you raced e EWS in the, in the chats. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did a few of those. Um, did two years I did three of those. Uh -huh. Um, and then I raced a bunch in North America and I actually started, I started doing cross country and then picked up downhill and then enduro kind of became a thing. Uh huh. What was your favorite place that you rode? Rode or raced? Um, let, let's, let's start with race. Then when we'll go to road, <laughs> um, there's a few, but obviously Whistler's gotta be on the list. Yeah. It's, it's Whistler. And that was one of the only races that I've been scared at the start. Like it, it rained and they were some of the gnarliest stages out of the whole series. 
uh -huh. and you're looking at you know 18 minutes of off camber wet routes on black diamond trails that everyone rides on downhill bikes and, and you're trying to sprint down it for 20 minutes on a trail bike <laughs> when it's just dumped for two days and so i, I actually put flat pedals on for that race and, and rode flats because i figured it was better to to finish a little further back than to finish with a broken wrist or something yeah yeah um other than that i really enjoy downeyville a lot i think uh -huh. that's probably my favorite event um it's cross country and downhill and the downhill is no joke you have to know how to ride your bike to get on that fast yeah. But you also have to know how to pace yourself and you have to be in tune with your body to do well in the downhill, not just the XC. And uh, I think it's it's one of the best competitions to see who is the most well-rounded mountain bike rider. Mm -hmm. um, and not just who's the best at going downhill or, or who's the best at going uphill. You have to you have to kind of do it all. It's funny that um Downeyville I and maybe I'm I'm not speaking correctly, but Correct me if I'm if if you think I'm wrong. I think Downeyville really doesn't get the name that it deserves. Like as far as like what the trail like what the trails there have. Like I feel like people are like, oh, the only thing that's on the West Coast is is like the PNW and like Whistler. You know? Yeah, I mean the Downeyville trails are pretty awesome. There's some other trails up there that, that blow the Downeyville trail out of the water. Um, uh -huh. Like there's a trail up at Gray Eagle. That's mm -hmm. probably one of the best trails I've ever ridden in my life. What was that? It wasn't Gray Eagle is what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the name of the trail? I don't remember the name. Uh -huh. I just was following some people and they said, you're going to like it. And I did. Uh -huh. uh, but it was not overly gnarly. It wasn't smooth and flowy. It was just kind of rocks. And all of a sudden you're just doubling from, from one rock to another. And it's like a downhill pump track made out of rocks and, and drifty turns. And, and you're stepping. 7,000 feet in the Sierras. Right. Was it kind of pedally? Uh, I didn't, I didn't find it to be pedally. I think Mills Peak is um, like right in that area. And I, I think that might be what you're talking about. Yeah, it might've been that it was, yeah. it was recently built, but it was super fun. Um, it was just like a, a, just a really fun trail that stuff in the Pacific Northwest is fun because it scares you. Yeah. And you can go ride, you know, I've ridden some of the, the gnarlier stuff up there and, yeah, it scares me and there aren't many trails these days that that i really get scared on and and it's always fun to go you know yeah and, and be challenged just to make it down right right i mean i watch some of that shit that bcpov puts on his channel around and they're just like i know from being a content creator that when something looks steep as fuck on video it's insanely fucking steep in, in real life yeah yeah <laughs> Like I just did this yeah. ride up in, in Mount Hoof, which is kind of in that Gray Eagle area, a little bit close to there where, where you're just talking about. And the first, like, I don't know, man, I bet you it was probably like a little bit more than a quarter mile right out of the parking lot. I bet you lose like a thousand feet elevation. Like, like, yeah. like if it's a half a mile, I'd be surprised. Like it is insane how much elevation you lose. And, and you're like, right out the parking lot not warmed up you know what i mean like you just like roll over the the lip of the parking lot and all of a sudden it's like boom it's on and uh i i just looked at the video after when i got to the house and i was like it looks like i'm in a fucking parking lot you know? yeah <laughs> just ridiculous so yeah right on man people so, people talk a lot of smack on the internet and then when yeah. you get them out for the trail they're like oh oh actually i, I won't ride that yeah yeah <laughs> 
And, you know, I think to, to be a content creator, A, you have to have thick skin and B, kind of have to not, not, you can't take that shit serious. I mean, especially yeah. me, it's like when I started my channel, I mean, look at me, dude, I'm not a pillar of fitness. Obviously, I'm not going to be the fastest, <laughs> fastest guy out there on the trail. I'm out there having a good time. That's what it's about to me. But, you know, we are all men, you know, and, and at the end of the day, you know, when somebody is digging on you, sometimes you're like, what the fuck, man? You know? Yeah. But I think generally speaking, most, most mountain bikers that aren't sitting behind a keyboard are pretty fucking cool guys. You know, yeah. and I think it's just that keyboard that gets to people. They're like, Oh, I can say whatever the fuck I want. These people don't yeah. have feelings, you know, and, and whatever, dude, <laughs> you know, who gives a shit, man. I'm still out there having a good time as is everybody else. And so it is what it is. So, um, do you have any so you, you're coming into winter for you are, are you guys able to ride all season where you're at or yeah there's i i've lived here for about five years now and there's usually you know two to three days a year where i guess you can ride you don't really want to you know uh -huh. we'll get the, the free um you know below 15 degrees where you mm. just, just take a day off um, yeah. but for the most part you can ride most of the winter um, the area of Wilson's Creek, the bottom of it is a 2,000 feet, and the top is a close to five. Mm -hmm. So in the summer, when it's hot down in Charlotte, and, you know, the, the southern heat wave, it's about 75 degrees up at my house. Right. So, so I'll it's... ride up in, in the high country, essentially, and we'll right. ride the upper half of Pisgah and stuff. And then in the winter, it usually doesn't get below 30, um, especially not for the high, down in somewhere like Charlotte or, or Morganton, mm -hmm. which is near the bottom. So we'll actually just drive down the hill about 30 to 40 minutes and just start our ride from down there. So when you start right. and it's 45 degrees and you're climbing up, you're sweating by the time you get to the top, you put a jacket on, you rip back down and, and right. it felt like a summer day. Yeah. It sounds similar to <laughs> kind of like what we do here, like as far as like driving up to Tahoe to kind of get away from the heat. And yeah. you know, a lot of those guys, once it starts snowing up there, if they're not skiing or snowboarding, they're, they're driving back down the hill here to, to, to ride. Which is cool, yeah, like for for me, like where we live, it's just you know, here in Northern California, you know, we're pretty blessed to have like monster elevation that we can get to quickly, and then in the winter time, it's like the way that the dirt is here, it just really makes for some really sweet sweet dirt once it starts raining and stuff like that, you know. And you're like, winter time, everybody's bitching about not being able to ride, and we're like, our trails are like freaking on point right now, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I growing up in in the LA area. I know how that goes. The uh, the winter is the best time to ride there. That's I think that's why I did good with racing, and I think that's why a lot of good racers come out of California is because when everyone else is is toughing it out and riding the trainer and getting through winter, these guys are just riding tons of miles. And then right. by the time race season comes around, they're they're pretty fast and they race all summer, and then right. it's hot and they're ready to be done and they rest right. and then winter comes and you're ready to do it all again. Yeah. I know for me, like in August, I, I kind of didn't ride for a little bit and everybody else is like, you know, trying to get the last of their summer out. And I'm like, it's too yeah. fucking hot. There's it's like fires and shit to get on. I don't give a shit, man. I don't go sit at the river and drink beer instead of riding bikes. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. go ahead. I just, I just bought a, speaking of winter, I just bought a pair of skis. So that's, oh, those are my go. plans for the winter. I got some, they're cross country trail skis. So I'm going to be skiing some, hopefully some of the stuff I mountain bike if we get enough snow right on. that way, when the, when the good weather comes around, I'm excited to ride my bike and you know, I didn't just 
ride through the snow all winter and i'm like all right well i guess i'll <laughs> ride now that it's warm when i i was in norway for a while up in the arctic circle and the kids up there at lunchtime like when they go out to recess they like cross-country ski around like the school it's, kind oh, of it's like that's what they do for fun up there it was kind of it was oh, kind of a man. trip to see that you know i mean i grew up in pennsylvania so i mean we'd have snow in the winter time stuff like that but we weren't we weren't heading out the door with skis on you know yeah so um what what is it what is it that you miss about riding in california uh i mean a lot of the trails i i grew up riding and I think everyone has a special place in their heart for the trails they've learned to ride on mm -hmm. and just, you know, coming back to the same features that you remember being, you know, for me, I remember being 12 years old thinking, man, I, it would be so cool if I could just ride that, that drop. Like I would be the coolest guy ever. And right. now I'm hitting that drop and I'm like, this is easy. And I'm, you know, doing do a wheelie off it or whatever. And, and seeing that progression through the years. And even now I'll, you know, I rode something last year that I'd never ridden before or rode a new line and, and being able to progress on these trails that you've been riding for 10 or 15 years, I think is, is pretty cool. Obviously the year round riding and, and being able to go to a place like Laguna where you can do 5,000 feet of climbing and descending and ride super gnarly trails and then pedal two minutes on the road and be at the beach and dump in the water instead of taking a shower. Like right. that's, that's pretty hard to beat all in one. So, so what's, what's the, what's the plus side to the, the riding back East where you're at? Well, the average summer high is about 75 degrees where I live. Um, it's not humid. The trails are green, the dirt's black. It's not sand. Um, so that's, that's pretty hard to beat. Um, there's tons of trails that are just deep in the back country and you know, you're not, you're not coming out in the middle of the city and stuff. Um, so it's a little, it's, it's pretty polar opposite to California, but mm -hmm. uh, a lot of super gnarly stuff. And uh, we kind of go, just go get lost in the woods. Yeah. So let's, let's circle back around, back around to, to TRP with the, um, <clears throat> with, with the different conditions, like something that's like back East where you're going to have a little bit more rain and, and mud versus out here in California where it's typically really dry. Is there some, something that like people should consider when they're looking at breaks as far as that goes? Um, not too much. Breaks are pretty made to work in all conditions. The main thing you'd want to look at is your brake pads there. Um, and there's, you know, three main types of brake pads. You have organic, which is made out of what we'll call it organic materials. So essentially there's no metal in it. And then you have a semi-metallic, which is half, you know, maybe not half and half, but it's a mix of organic and metallic. And then you have a full metallic pad, which is made out of, of mostly metal shavings. And the main differences are traditionally metallic pads have had a little more noise, but longer pad life, more power, more bite, um, mm -hmm. and better with heat. Do they, call, organic do they pads, call organic also resin? Yeah. So okay. organic can be called resin. Semi is kind of, it's always semi it's in the middle mm -hmm. and then metallic full metallic or centered pads are kind of all the same so um, metallic and centered is the same organic and resins the same and then in between yeah the semi is there um so i know i have a preference and it, for me i think it's the i like the the organics just because they're a little quieter 
And um, yeah, but but you definitely do burn through those pads a lot faster, especially being yeah. a big dude. Yeah, that, if you tried to ride organics in the mud, you're going to be changing your pads probably every two weeks. Oh, um, just yeah, they they you burn through them pretty quick. Uh, I mean, obviously, it depends how much you ride, what you ride, and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, but organics traditionally are, are quieter. Um, with our metallic pads, we've gotten a lot of comments from customers saying your metallic pads aren't noisy, so I'm going to take the longer pad life and the more power. Mm -hmm. um, and I think even Shimano and SRAM have gotten pretty good with their metallic pads being quieter now. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the noise comes down to pad maintenance, rotor maintenance, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, if your brake is, you know, your rotors are perfectly clean, your pads aren't glazed, um, and nothing's contaminated, your full metallic setup shouldn't really make any more noise than they're organic. Can you um, talk? Can you talk about pad and rotor maintenance? What you mean by that? Yeah. So I mean, that that would have to be a whole nother three hour special uh, <laughs> to really get into it. But the main thing is you. You know, the biggest thing I see people do is they grab the rotor with their, touch it with their finger, or they grab the pad and, and rub their thumb over the surface of the pad. Um, and basically, you just don't want any type of oil or grease getting on your rotor or pad because both of those contact and, and transfer. Um, your hand has oil on it. Uh, anytime you're using like a spray lube, if you spray that on the cassette, that's going to go onto the rotor. Um, and those are all things that can contaminate it. You could be driving down the road and there's a puddle of oil and gets splashed up on your bike from the bike rack. Uh, and so if that gets onto your rotor, you go ride and you grab the brakes, it's going to get on your pads. And the pads, I mean, they're not a sponge, but they kind of act like a sponge where if you get oil or grease on it and there's enough, it will actually soak through the whole pad. So at that point, you have to go buy new pads. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're riding a contaminated pad, it will sometimes make that kind of um, not the turkey gobble, but more of the how, right. like, you know, almost sounding like a wet rag on a window. Right. Um, and you'll be able to, you know, grab your brake and still, still move the wheel. Right. Um, and that, that typically signifies a contaminated pad. And um, the main thing there is just take your pads out, throw them away, take your rotor off, clean it with um, isopropyl rubbing alcohol or a brake cleaner. Um, and then don't touch the rotor with your fingers. Don't touch the braking surface because your fingers naturally have oil on it. If you, you probably lube your chain and there's some grease on your fingers too. So you want to be super careful not to touch that braking surface. And then you want to get some new pads and install those also without touching the braking surface. Right. Um, and then the, the next thing where people mess up is they don't bed in their pads properly. So a lot of people like to take a brand new pad in and say, okay, I'm going to go ride the steepest trail I know and that's going to bed them in. And that's probably the worst thing you can do. Uh, with a brand new pad, it's not mated to the rotor. So all the microscopic in, imperfections have not been worn down so that the pad's making full contact with every little micro contour. Um, and so if you don't get it bedded in, you have less friction, right? Because you're not contacting everywhere perfectly. Mm -hmm. And less friction means you're going to grab the brake more. So if you go ride a steep trail, you're going to be dragging your brake more than you should, whereas normally you brake and then let go and brake and let go. Um, when you drag your brake, you heat it up. And when you heat up a brake pad at a certain point, it glazes over. You know, the material gets so hot that it gets it's smooth like, like glass. And then you have even less friction than a brand new pad. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times that's when your brake will start making that, that turkey noise and the gobbling. Right. Um, and then once you have a glazed pad, 
luckily you don't have to throw them away. You just have to take them off and use some either sandpaper or like drywall sandpaper where the material can fall through and essentially rough up the surface and then go bed your pad in the prop. And without getting into too much detail of proper bedding procedure, you go in like a flat parking lot or somewhere where your brakes don't have to work great. And you kind of pedal up to 15 miles an hour and then grab the brake super hard. And so you slow down to about five. You don't want to stop or, or, you know, hold the pad to the rotor for too long. Cause then you're holding a hot pad to a hot rotor and you run the risk of blazing it. Basically you'll pedal brake super hard, let go before you stop and pedal up to speed. And you repeat that process maybe 15 to 20 times, depending on the pad the rotor type. And that just lets the pad slowly mate with that rotor instead of just trial by fire. Essentially it, it warms it up to it. And then once it's meshed, you should have good friction and you shouldn't be dragging the brakes and, and you won't have issues with blading. Definitely all, all good stuff. I, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir as far as uh, I'm concerned, but I definitely think that you're, you're helping other people know, know those things. Whenever I see people like grabbing the rotors or whatever, I, I always am like, why are you doing that, dude? Like, yeah. It doesn't even make yeah, any sense to me. It's one of my biggest pet peeves. I mean, I, I get the idea you want to touch and feel everything, but there are certain things that you just shouldn't, you know, or like even Nobody, installing them, they'll be like putting on a brand new rotor and they're just like, you know, holding it like a, like a, I don't even know how to say it, like a piece of pizza or something, you know, it's yeah. like, you're like, dude, like there's just grab them, like, you know, stick your yeah. fingers through the holes and then put them on there. Like, why are you doing this? And then you're, then you're, you know, two days later or a day later, whenever we're riding bitching about something not being right. And you're like, yeah, it, it is what it is. I think that the bed in thing too is, is, you know, people, sometimes they'll be somewhere and they just throw some new pads in the night before and don't, you know, don't realize that you could actually just do that in the parking lot before you, before you start your ride and kind of set yourself up a little better. Yeah. That's, th that's one of those things where if you take it to a bike shop, the mechanic probably did it for you and didn't tell you you did it. Right. And when you go to put them in yourself, you don't think you need to do it and you just, just let's go ride. Yeah. Yeah. Is that and then normally whenever uh, I'm using the sandpaper to kind of rough them up again, if if I did glaze them or something like that, kind of do like a figure eight routine with the with a little bit of the the alcohol as well. And I I don't know why I'm using alcohol. I think just because it kind of makes it, the sandpaper like a little gritty, you know. And then yeah, uh, that that seems seems to help help uh, kind of rough them back up again. Yeah. And then. Uh, Moving on from from that, I am freaking completely losing my train of thought right now. Um, <laughs> so, whenever people are actually, I'm I'm struggling right there. I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. Well, in the in the meantime, I I definitely got to give a shout out to my buddy Steve uh, oh, Steve yeah? Watkins, who's he's just texting me to say, "Hey, I'm watching you on the podcast right now." Oh, that's awesome! And I I didn't even tell him I was going to be on it, so. Oh, that's cool. So he's a subscriber as well, then. Yeah, I, I guess that. I guess so. How you know? Uh, him, he's man? he's one of the local guys I go ride with um, pretty frequently out in in Pisgah and stuff. I was actually out riding with him this Saturday. Right on. So yeah, we did a big, a big. Uh, not actually, it wasn't that big, but it was. Uh, the leaves are changing out here right now, so it's just orange and red and yellow everywhere. And we we're uh -huh. skidding around in the leaves because you can't touch the dirt right now. Yeah, you guys are riding in a lot of leaves over there, and that's one thing that we don't have a lot out here. And whenever I get into a trail that is like 
covered with leaves. I, I have a re big respect for you guys because it's like <laughs> the, the 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 like predictability of the traction in leaves is like next to none. You know? Yeah, I mean it's it's like riding in snow. It's fun once or twice, and then you're like, all right, I'm ready to right? ready for dirt again. <laughs> I mean, do they go through, like, I guess, like, some of the trail maintenance in Pisgah is, like, people just walking around with a freaking leaf blower blowing that shit off? Or is it getting, like, blown off the trail just from people riding it? Yeah, it's it's a mix of both. Uh, our trails don't see enough traffic that you, they won't get ridden off. We'll, we have to go out. Someone goes out and leaf blows them. Oh, wow. Um, I don't own a leaf blower, so I actually just can't do it. Yeah. Um, I do my best to ride as fast as I can. Yeah, you're just a shredder. Well, you're like, I'll do it. No, I'm fucking cooking, dude. I just blow that shit all over the place. <laughs> yeah, or we'll get a big rainstorm, and then uh, the water flowing will actually wash them off, too. Because, uh -huh. you know, we get that out here in North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. Water falling from the sky. <laughs> Lots of that. Yeah, we don't we don't see much of that out here in California. <laughs> yeah. So where where um, do you have any, any trips in mind next year? Any riding trips? Uh, I'll have a lot. So a big part of my job is is taking our new brakes or our prototypes out to customers, which my customers are all the, the bike brands in North America. So mm -hmm. your specialized Cannondale, Fuji, um, Norco, all those guys. And I'll take the brakes out there, take my bike or steal one of their demo bikes. And I, when I'm shopping around for a new bike, I get the unique opportunity to go to every company and test ride one of their demos. Right. Uh, but so I'll go and ride with a lot of those guys. So I'll spend some time in the Pacific Northwest because you got you know, Kona, Rocky Mountain, Norco, uh, Raleigh Diamondback. So I'll go ride with a lot of those guys, which is always a treat. That's probably one of my favorite places to ride outside right. of California. And then obviously you got specialized Santa Cruz and Marin all up in your area, which Santa Cruz is one of my favorite places to ride. And, and I've been shown some of the cool, you know, less than uh we'll say legal stuff in uh in the marin nevado yeah petaluma area and that yeah. stuff was super cool too yeah um there, there's a lot of that in the bay area a lot of that less than legal yeah. stuff <laughs> which is funny yeah. because like that's where mountain biking essentially started and it's like one of the like least legal places to ride today <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of ridiculous but I guess that's what happens when mountain bikers are not the richest people around. Right. <laughs> right. We get, we don't get the most say. Yeah. Some of these days, one of these days we'll get rid of those pesky uh, equestrians. <laughs> yeah. So then you're getting down South too. Are, are you doing, um, so cause oh, down in like the SoCal area, you got what giant down there and some yeah, other companies I, as well. I don't work with Giant because I think they're technically a, a Taiwanese or Chinese company. Oh, I see. Um, so we have some guys in Taiwan who probably work with them. Oh, okay. That that may be part of the plan in the future is to work with the U.S. branch and our Taiwan guys can work with the Taiwan branch and we're all right. better off. But I'll go see Haro and Felt um, probably intense at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of growing into this job where it started with me meeting with our existing customers and now we're you know, looking to branch out. Like pre-marketing with other other customers and stuff like that. Yeah, well, mostly just to meet with every brand that's out there. Right. So not necessarily that we're expecting to sell with everyone, but just everyone knows what we have and is what's yeah. available. And if it's right for them, they'll choose to buy it. If not, yeah. they'll buy whatever. How do you like TRP as a company? 
like being an employee? Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, it's a, it's a smaller crew. So we get, get the unique opportunity to do a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, you know, I'll do a lot of our social media, um, some of our athlete sponsorship stuff. I'll do things like this. I'll go do OEM sales. I'll be on the show floor at Interbike. So it, it's uh -huh. pretty cool to, to get to do a bunch of those things. Um, at the same time, that can be you know, stressful and draining to be right. trying to be the master of, of six different tasks. And yeah, it's yeah. a lot of travel. Thing. Um, it's, it's pros and cons, but fun to be um, kind of the underdogs in a sense. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, obviously if you're Shram and Shimano, that those brands carry a certain weight. That, yeah. Um, you know, they've been around for so long and, and they walk into the room, people listen. Right. For us, we, we kind of have to work a little harder, but it's, yeah. a, it's a fun challenge to, to say, okay, if you don't want to listen to me, I'm going to, you know, we're going to make a product that you have to listen to. Like you, you yeah. won't be able to ignore this. I think that there's something good about the smaller company as well, just because I feel like, I feel like customer service wise, like, like you really still give a shit about your customers. And I'm not saying that the bigger companies don't, but yeah, I mean, just to pick on some companies while we're having this conversation and, and not for any reason other than pulling a name out of a hat. Like I walk into your area and you guys are chatting it up with me. Like I'm just a regular dude, you know, and I walk into like SRAM's like special little section area of, of Interbike and, you know, they're like, they're talking to some other dude that's you know gonna buy like five million sets of something from them, and they don't really give a fuck about the regular guy, you know. And, yeah. And I, and I and and you know, at the end of the day, like yeah, that event is not made for the regular guy, you know. So I, I can't really knock on them too much for it, but on the other hand, it, I mean, it still carries some weight in your personality, you know, when you walk out of the room. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I yeah, I don't want to pick on any companies because I have, I have good friends at Shran and Shimano and yeah. Yeah. And and I'm, I'm just and, using uh, them because that's a name that everybody yeah. knows. I mean, it, that, that may not even been the experience that I had. It, it's just, yeah, you, no, know, it, you know what yeah, I'm saying? Not, yeah. Not that you were talking trash, but it's more of uh, what I was getting at was I know guys there who, who are super cool. And I've met guys at those companies who are the opposite, right? They're yeah. the biggest douchebags you've ever met. Right. Um, and I think the smaller company, when there's six or eight of us, it's pretty easy for you know the boss to be super hands-on and call right. people out if they're not you know being the way he wants them to be right. whereas you know somewhere like shimano or shram you got you know a few thousand employees you know probably 50 to 60 guys just in the marketing department so they may not see that someone else's behavior or see the way they they yeah. kind of ignored you at interbike and, and um it I, comes I, more onto the employees personal values and the way they see things. And then sometimes it's the company culture. You know, yeah. Shimano has, well, I think a lot of rules about dress code and they always have to wear the blue polos. Whereas yeah. Tran, they get a little more freestyle. Like they kind of can wear a button up or they can wear a t-shirt. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we kind of have so a, on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and that's, that's where you get companies get the chance to differentiate themselves. I yeah. I think the smaller companies though too they'll still be like super hungry like i can equate yeah. it to like football you know like the college football players like those guys are running the freaking like the 90 yard kickoff return touchdowns you know and, yeah and they're they're like going for fourth and goal all the time or you know or you know yeah. where it's like pro it's like yeah 
well, well, we'll just kick it and we'll see what happens. And, you know, it's like, we're, we're going to play the strategy game and instead of like the, let's see how big my balls are game. And, and, uh, <laughs> and I think, you know, with that, that perspective, like wrapping it back into the bike companies, like there's smaller companies, they have that hunger, you know, where they're just trying, maybe they'll take some chances on some things or, you know, try, try to push the envelope a little bit more because their opportunity for failure isn't as much, you know, like, let's just say you guys make a brake design that maybe once it comes out of production, it isn't like up to snuff for you guys. Like how many you've rolled off the production line at that point compared to maybe another company that's a huge company. Like they, they yeah. have a lot, a lot bigger, you know, loss that they've taken for that risk. Yeah. And our ability to pivot is probably our, our biggest strength at the moment. Whereas, <laughs> oh, e-bikes are the new sector. Boom. Let's pivot all of our engineering and focus into that and make mm -hmm. a, make a break right away. Whereas, um, some of the larger companies, it's a three-year track just to turn that ship in the other direction. Yeah, yeah, and that, um, that's definitely, you know, that another, that uh, very strong point in a smaller company is that ability, what you're saying there. Yeah, I mean, and there, there's pros and cons to both, obviously. They have resources and, and support crew that, you know, would be awesome if we had it, but we don't. And right. we can pivot and do things quicker, and they wish they could, but they can't. Yeah. So it's all pros and cons, and it's definitely uh, been a fun experience being on the smaller side mm -hmm. um, and learning a lot. And if I ever am on the, the larger side, I think it'll be a, a super valuable skill set to know how each part of a company functions. Whereas mm -hmm. if you're at a larger company, you're just one piece in the marketing department. Yeah. Whereas here, I you know I've jumped between marketing and engineering. Obviously, I'm not doing engineering, but working with the engineers on a new project and, and getting feedback from customers and, and athletes and kind of being involved in all those sides, it, it gives you that big picture um, yeah, I, I without being the CEO. has to give you a, a bunch of self-worth as well in your job, what you're doing, you know, like feeling yeah. like you're really being able to make, make an impact on, on things. Do you go to a bunch of the different um, like kind of events like a uh, Sedona kind of things and stuff like that or? Not at the moment. I, I do a lot of travel visiting the customers and then go to the big trade shows like your Sea Otter and mm -hmm. Interbike, Eurobike. Um, I'll be at Taichung probably in the spring. Mm -hmm. I think What's I that? Um, that's kind of like a Interbike or Sea Otter over in Taiwan. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and that's where a lot of the new products will get displayed because they'll just you know carry the prototype over from the factory you know, uh -huh. in the taxi or whatever. Um, so out of those big events, so basically you got Sea Otter here in the U.S., Eurobike in the in your, and then the 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 Wang Chung that you were just talking about a second ago. <laughs> <laughs> which, which one of those events to you like is is the most fun? Um, I mean, for me, Sea Otter is the most fun because it's kind of like going home for me. It's right. Obviously not SoCal, but I got a lot of friends who are up there racing. Um, but my favorite thing is I stand on my feet all day and answer questions about breaks and then I get to go hang out at the beach after. right uh, and that's I had no offense to Reno but I prefer Monterey to Reno yeah um, pretty much yeah. any day no no I hear you there that, that that's really easy to 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 make that decision yeah and I like the the vibe of sea otter it's it's big it's outdoors you're you know, out in the sun breathing in fresh air and mm -hmm. you've got racing going on. You've got demos, you've got grand fondos and it's really anyone who's into bikes can go there and find something. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I think that's pretty cool. And to me, that's the most valuable event because you can go to a Sedona and you're going to get a lot of non-racers and people who ride their bikes for fun. And then you can go to, you know, world champs or something and you're only going to get racers and fans. Mm-hmm. Um, or you go to an outer bike in Moab and you're only getting guys who are trying to pick out their next bike. Right. And sea otter, you kind of get a little of everything, which is at the end of the day, if they're riding a bike, they're spending money on it. So you don't want to yeah. isolate, you don't want to isolate the racers or isolate the non-racers. Yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't get to go last year. That would have been my, my, I haven't, I've never actually been to sea otter. So last year I was planning on going, but one of my buddies got married. I was the best man in his wedding, so I couldn't dip out on that one. And yeah, uh, that's fair I, enough. Unfortunately, he decided to go get married in Hawaii too, because I was like, "Why couldn't you just do it at home, dude? I could went to see her <laughs> the next day, you know." So, like, here I am bitching about going to Hawaii, right? And uh, yeah, but uh, I'm really looking forward to going next year. Do you guys typically do like any kind of like releases whenever you you go to Seattle, or is that kind of like? The releases, we're, we're trying to start releasing things just when they're ready and not mm-hmm. force it ahead for Sea Otter or sit on it until Sea Otter kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that's just with the internet, it's so big that you know everyone will do a release of Sea Otter. So why not right. do it two weeks before or two weeks after when mm-hmm. you know you know the magazines aren't trying to pick the 50 coolest things from Sea Otter. They're picking the coolest thing on May 14th. Right. So you, you definitely have more of a chance to get a to, to get noticed at that point than you do if you're in the mix of everybody else. Yeah, and I think it's it's not even a chance to get noticed. It's even a specialized or whoever the biggest company is. They could release something at Sea Otter, and they're going to get you know a good mention, but it's still a good mention in a sheet of other, everyone else's stuff. Right, right. That's how. Uh, totally and so, sense. rather than fighting to get on the list of fifty, just pick a day when you're the only one. Right. Or or maybe it's you against someone else rather than you against the entire industry. Right, right. Like maybe one of your competitors is launching something you want to get in front of that or something like Yeah. I get it. Yeah, but yeah. On the on the other hand, if the dates line up, what a bigger state what a better stage than Seattle, right? Everyone's right. there, everyone's seen it. The media is looking for everything. So uh-huh. I, I don't think there's a downside to either. Uh, but yeah, I think with the internet, there's less of a focus on hitting those those deadlines, and I think that's why the you'll see like the indoor interbike has kind of been shrinking over the years because there's no reason to go display stuff anymore. It's, right. We want to ride it. We want to feel it. See how it works. That sort of thing. Yeah, I think that the other thing too is like this is what was explained to me by somebody at at, at the outer bike, and I don't know how true it is, but they were like. If, if you were a company like a Santa Cruz or a Specialized or whoever, like those companies that you didn't see there, the, the big mountain yeah. brands, they're, they're doing, they were, they told me that they're doing a lot of their own events now because yeah. then you can get people there and they can drink the Santa Cruz Kool-Aid or the Specialized Kool-Aid for the whole event, or they could go to Interbike and they could talk to you for an hour. You know? Yeah. So, the, the main component is those guys have their dealers. And so a specialized dealer will sell only specialized bikes. And so what what reason does he have to fly to Reno to go look at the new specialized bikes? And you know, he's he could look at the Trek, but he's not gonna sell them. He's, he can look at the the mongoose or whatever. Mm-hmm. So why not buy a flight to Morgan Hill and go visit specialized and you can ask about pricing, 
and they can hand you free t-shirt and water bottles and give you a tour of the factory and then right. show you all the new stuff. And you didn't, you wait, you spend more time focusing on the stuff you actually sell versus, you know, looking around at what's new and, and, you know, spending a bunch of money staying in a hotel in Reno. Right. I keep forgetting that they're down there. I need to like work my magic to try to get in, in the doors there and talk to somebody. I, I am, um, I know that, or they're still probably specialized as the biggest bike seller out there, aren't they? Yeah. I think, they're, I, I think they're still number one. I think Shimano is the largest company in the cycling industry, maybe giant. Mm -hmm. um, those two. And then specializes is either number two or three as far as, you know, gross income, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Specialized. I think, I think it's definitely like the largest bike, bike sales bike. Yeah. Sales. Yeah. 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 They're, there's one thing about you know being the biggest company like that. I'm sure you get a lot of flack because you're you're the you're the elephant in the room. But on the other hand, like what I always tell people whenever they're like kind of thinking about those bikes and and somewhere they've gotten that opinion from somebody else, like oh I don't want specialized. They're the biggest, and it's like look, dude, you also don't get to be the biggest company if you don't sell good shit. You know? Yeah, like so, like just don't go crap on them just because they're the biggest. Like, like there, there, there's obviously something behind that. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I own a specialized. Uh, my cyclocross bike is a specialized. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, they make some of the best bikes out there. Um, mm -hmm. some bikes, in my opinion, other people do better. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, if specialized sells more bikes, more people want specialized than other bikes. And therefore, they are the biggest company. It's not, right. you know, they didn't sell their soul to someone to make sure that Specialized gets bought. And, you know, it's it's similar to with politics. If someone gets more votes, you may not like them or agree or think they're dumb, but more people wanted them than the other guy. Right. So therefore, they are the choice. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Or, or at least more people showed up, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned cyclocross a second ago. Do you guys have a line of brakes for them as well? Yeah. So we have, we actually, when cyclocross bikes were all cantilever brakes, we made probably the best cantilever brake on the market, which was mm -hmm. the Revox. And it's since been, I believe it's discontinued now because cantilever brakes, nobody, nobody buys them anymore. Right. Um, but we won, uh, we were trying to count the other day, 12 or 15 world titles and several world cup overalls all on cantilever brakes. Uh, mm -hmm. Since then, we have two products that are you know, kind of cyclocross, but they're more geared towards uh, the budget cyclocross or drop bar bike, and they're cable actuator brakes. Mm -hmm. So we have one that's a, a dual piston mechanical. So mm -hmm. most mechanicals, one side's fixed and one side moves in, right. and then it bends the rotor over into the other pad, and then it contacts both pads. So ours, both pads contact evenly, just like a hydraulic brake. So it gives mm -hmm. you a little more power, uh, more even clamping force, even pad wear, um, mm -hmm. easier adjustability to center it so it's not rubbing. Mm -hmm. And then we actually have a hydraulic caliper that's actuated by a cable. So oh, it, wow. takes, it takes basically the piston and the push rod that's in the lever and attaches it to the caliper and pulls it with a cable instead of you pulling it with your finger. So what's, um, the, what's the point in doing a hydraulic cable actuated brake? Like, I, I don't understand so, why, why you would want to go through the extra engineering. Yeah, the main reason is cost savings. Uh -huh. uh, 
And actually, initially, when disc brakes came to drop bars, nobody had hydraulic brakes in the left. So you had cable only, and then you could have mechanical or a hybrid. Right. Um, and then as people have introduced hydraulic, it unfortunately costs more. So, um, you know, and I don't know the exact numbers for the customer, but you can pretty much go one level higher on your shifting and use cable actuated brakes um, than if you went full hydraulic. So in mm -hmm. road bike terms, if you want to use Ultegra shifting, um, you can get that with a cable actuated brake for the same mm -hmm. price as one of five shifting that's full hydraulic. Right. So that's the main thing. And if, if you're riding road bikes and even cyclocross, um, the hydraulic caliper will give you the same, same braking power, but you just have a little more friction with the cable. And so it's, it doesn't feel as nice and smooth, but it serves the same purpose. I can lock up my wheels and I can stop you around the corner and whatever. So, is there a weight difference with the cable actuated over the hydraulic? I think it's pretty even. Um, our probably our hydraulic cable actuated is is the same or heavier. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, one you have a three ply hydraulic line with fluid inside, and one you have um, you know a, a compressionless steel wound housing with a steel cable inside. Mm -hmm. So I think. I don't remember which way the weight goes and it may depend on your setup, but I, yeah. I don't think it was, it mostly wasn't a weight thing. It's the main thing is hydraulics in the mud and the dirt will be consistently smooth. Whereas mm -hmm. cable, just like your shifting cables, you'll have to change it as you ride, right? You'll ride for three months and it gets dirty and rusty and then you got to change it or else it won't be smooth anymore. Right. I hear you. That, that's interesting, man. It's definitely, um, so many different aspects and i think even as a mountain biker like before i think you know you, you pretty much were always like a you know a, a wide knobby tire flat bar kind of guy and now the mountain biking like it is like kind of crossing over a little bit with those those gravel bikes those cx bikes as well you know where you're starting to see i mean even me like i i bought mine because i i didn't want to buy a road bike right but I could, yeah. buy, I could buy a CX bike and put, put um, slicks on it and ride with my lady on her road bike whenever, you know, she wanted to go on some big ride like that. But on the other hand, I could go somewhere that was kind of like tame to ride on my, my, my Bronson, you know, yeah. and turn that into a pretty fun ride though, you, you know? So it's definitely, um, and I don't feel like I'm uh, like selling out to like the, the Lycra, Lycra gods, you know, by, yeah. by getting a CX bike, right? So that, that, that's, uh, it, it's, it's fun to see like the changes, you know, and I, I'm really curious to see, you know, at the end, like how the whole e-bike thing plays out. I have my opinions. I don't want to get too much into that at this point. Um, but uh, I, I think that it's a good time to be a, to be a bike rider and it's a good time to, to have a good product out there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think the whole industry is changing and, and uh, e-bikes bring an interesting dynamic. Um, so it's, it's cool. I, I have a good buddy from Southern California who's, he's gotta be 70, you know, in his mid seventies now. And he's had two heart surgeries and he's got a pacemaker and you know, he was in Vietnam and everything. And basically his doctor told him you can't mountain bike anymore because if your heart rate gets too high, the pacemaker's not going to keep up. Right. And so, he asked the doctor, okay, if I ride with this heart monitor that beeps when it gets too high, can I ride? The doctor said, sure. So he rides with that. He went and bought an e-bike. 
Right. And now he's sitting on my wheel and I, you know, I race and stuff. He's sitting on my wheel, making fun of me, telling me to go faster, which right. he's never, he's never been able to keep up with me before. Right. And he's sitting there and then his, his heart thing goes off. So he slows down a little bit, and but he can keep riding with all of us. Yeah. And, you know, even awesome. though he's, he's having health concerns. And I yeah. think that aspect of it's really cool. Um, and personally, I don't, I don't have one. I don't have the money to buy one. Right. Uh, I wouldn't mind one for a day when I'm super tired or, or hungover or something. And I just yeah. don't want to sweat it out. Right. But, um, Story of my for, life. <laughs> for the most part, I, I enjoy the pain and, and the getting the fitness. So I don't yeah, mind. Yeah. Like, sometimes I'll actually go park at the bottom and, and pedal up for the shuttle because I don't want to shuttle up. I'd like to uh, get one to just go do like some like 50 mile epic up in Tahoe that I wouldn't be able to pedal normally. You, you know what yeah, I mean? And I, like, I, to me, the, the beauty of it is that, you know, at one point we added suspension and disc brakes to bikes and the segment could be made then. Well, now you can ride farther than you should and you didn't earn your turns because now your bike is 20 pounds instead of 45. Yeah. And now you have a motor that helps you go a little further, but you still have to pedal yourself and you still have to. I just read an article like the, uh, do, you, do you ever read Mountain Bike Action? I do. I haven't read in, uh recent ones one of my favorite and i i have that uh subscription to the magazine I, I i'll be honest i probably didn't read like the last 10 just because yeah. i've been busy as shit, right but the other day yeah. i was cleaning up stuff and the new one came in the mail and i always like the little editorial that's at the beginning it's kind of yeah. like you know like a one page little thing and, and the thing that the guy was talking about and the one that i read just the other day was he was saying it's it's funny how like people want to shit on e-bikes and they say, Oh, you didn't earn it or whatever. But yeah. he was, he was going out to Whistler for something. Right. And there yeah. was some company that was contacting him about, Hey, do you want to take this heli drop? And he's like, so yeah. all the same people that will talk to you all kinds of shit about how crappy it is to like not earn your turn on e-bike are all the guys that are definitely putting their hands up to get on this fucking helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, no, it's it's a huge double standard, and and I don't think there are many people out there who can say I've never taken a chairlift, I've never taken a shuttle, right? I've never gotten a flat tire, gotten someone's car to ride home, right? And, and that's all the e-bike is is it's your it's your spare tube or it's your chairlift yeah. where there isn't a chairlift. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's it's not the e-bike's fault that people are going places they shouldn't be. That's rider yeah. responsibility, and if a zone is closed to bikes, you shouldn't ride it. Yeah. I think the other end of it too is like you almost said it verbatim, but just in different words that like here, here is a guy that is cooking on his own power at you. And here is a yeah. guy that's on the e-bike is just being able to keep up with you. So what does that yeah. tell you? Like for the most part, most of the average quote unquote, you know, or whatever kind of guys, the speeds that they're going to do on the e-bike are not any better than what we got. The shredders are doing. So, yeah. it's, you know, so. Yeah, and I mean, it, at the end of the day, it's I'm not insecure about someone. You know, if someone passed me on an e-bike, hey, that's cool. They're they're going fast. Like I want to go yeah. fast too, and that's it's none of my business. And yeah. if you got a problem with someone passing you on an e-bike, you know, maybe you should get an e-bike then, right. or or get a little faster. You know, go get a right. coach or something. Right. Um, I think you know it. It's similar to how I feel just about trail access and stuff like that. I'm like why should we be like stopping anybody to go outside at this point? Like it, 
you yeah. know, it, 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 there's not enough people going outside as it is. So to like start laying restrictions on like, you can't ride bike here or you can't ride e-bike there. Or, you know, it's like, you can't hike on this trail. It's like, dude, I, I don't, I don't really care. You know, like <laughs> get outside and, and fucking have fun. Right. Yeah. Well, Hey Cody, I really appreciate you. You taking the time to sit down here. We're, we're like rolling up on two hours. Is there anything you want to say about TRP and closing or. No, I think we, we covered a lot of it. Just, uh, you know, we're, we're out here trying to make the best, best breaks we can for people and, and hopefully improve their experience riding bikes. And Right on. Um, thanks for having me. And it's, it's the daylight savings is hitting me. It's about yeah. nine o'clock on the East coast. And we had a, a late one on one of the pub cycle bikes for friends going <laughs> away party last night. And then we rode for like three hours today. So ouch. I'm well, about maxed out. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I feel you, dude. I, I um, I, I, I'm over forty, so I, I have that excuse every weekend. So daylight yeah. savings makes it worse. So, I, I once again, dude, I, I really appreciate you being on here. It was really fun chatting with you about about breaks and the industry, and I had a, a great, great time talking with you. I look forward to to bumping into you again out here in the out in the mix again sometime in the near future. Um. For all you guys listening, I'm just going to reiterate, this is also a podcast that you can check out on Apple and Google Play and SoundCloud. If you get a chance to swing by there and uh, do a little uh, little write-up or give some stars or something like that, that would be awesome. Same thing with this video. Hit a thumbs up. If you want to see more of this content, hit the subscribe button. Um, it's pretty simple. Like that, that number makes me feel good about myself. And other than that, it also makes the algorithm work. So, um, if you're, if you're trolling this shit, hit the button. Um, I appreciate everybody. I want you guys all to know it only takes a bike to be a biker. Get the fuck out and be one bitches. <laughs> <laughs>